Hello? Is it? That's Jamie frozen for you too. Oh, sorry. I, I'd stop talking. Um, <laughs> I think what, you froze you were, a little bit. What, did you, <laughs> what when did you last year? No, you, I think you did finish talking, but okay. then you froze. And I okay, was like, sorry. oh That's no. <laughs> but, I, I, but then I wasn't sure if he had frozen and he was just sitting perfectly still. <laughs> like a human statue. Like you were posing for the golden Jamie. <laughs> Much like the worst person in the world, he's demonstrating that you can just stand I'm just looking at the castle wistfully. Like... The incredible special effects on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> if we, if we're not How does anything, he do it? You can be very confused when people stand still. Oh, right, this is going to be fun. This is both going to be fun and good. All right, hello, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It is the film podcast from the people behind The Skinny magazine. I'm Peter Simpson, joined upstairs in the building by Jamie Dunn. Hello. Say hello, Jamie. There you go. Hi, how's it going? I'm not too bad. Uh, I've run around the building trying to find an open meeting room. It's been quite stressful. And joining us remotely from Oxford, is it? Luton. Luton. No, it's Luton now. Yeah, I'm at my parents. Live from Luton. It's, yeah. it's, it's Anna Kiteru's. <laughs> Hello. The true capital of this great nation. <laughs> hey now. <laughs> so on today's episode, we're going to be reviewing compartment number six, which is the new film from Yuho Kosmanin, which uh, shared, was it the Golden Lion? Which of the golden things was it, Jamie? It won uh, Best Director at Cannes, I believe. Okay. So can award-winning Finnish drama compartment number six. We'll be talking about that in honor. And, and he of... looks uh, suspicious. Maybe I'm wrong. It's what it won well, a can award. One of the lower. I thought awards. it shared something with a hero, but yes. now I can't remember what it was. I thought it was like was it Uncertain Regard? Was it that one? It, oh, maybe also. Oh, it will be now the, best director, and this will yeah, be embarrassing. It was maybe one of the jury prizes or the Grand Prix. Maybe um, I could be wrong. Yes. Yeah, it was the Grand Prix. Yeah, there we go. Cool. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, Peter. It says here on Google that it won the Grand Jury Prize. Is that the same as the Grand Prix? Uh... I think the Jury Prize is the third prize, but it won an award at Cannes. How's that? Compartment number six won an award at Cannes, but did we like it? Yeah. You'll find out shortly. In in <laughs> honour of that film, which is set largely on a train, we will be talking about other films that are also set on or heavily involving trains, and we'll be talking about the film's love of riding that rail, um, whether it's to a capitalist snowmageddon or with John Candy, and you also have to drive for a little bit of it. We're also going to briefly discuss the Oscars, find out what form that takes later on in the episode. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, we're just going to be starting off with a little catch up. As you can see, the energy in the room is good. Um, first, <laughs> the energy in the three rooms that we are in is just delightful you could bottle it first things first though uh we just all want to say a big congrats to everyone involved with glasgow short film festival on another excellent edition of the festival so big shouts out to all the filmmakers casts crews festival staff all the venue staff uh good job to everyone thanks to everyone who came down to the kino pravda screening that we were involved with on friday night Uh, and also jamie talked up uh, the Bayview, the Daniel Cook documentary on the last episode of the podcast, and then it won the Scottish, like best Scottish short film competition. So that is the power of this podcast, or just the fact that Jamie knows lots about films. Exactly. Who needs a jury? Just get me. 
I, I, I pick all the right films. Oh, the <laughs> grand Jamie that at Cannes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I may not know what the awards are, but I can pick them. The golden bear, the golden lion, and then just a golden effigy of Jamie. Exactly. <laughs> what a cursed object. Anyway, Jamie, what have you been watching in the last couple of weeks? I've been watching Disney Plus's surprisingly fun cannibalism movie, uh, which I didn't think would be a thing. But yeah, Disney Plus, I guess it's Star. It's not exactly Disney Plus, but uh, so the film's called Fresh. It stars Daisy Edgar-Jones, who you might remember from Normal People. Uh, she plays Noah, who's this woman who can't get a date, which is probably the only thing that doesn't really ring true in the whole film. Um, uh, but anyway, she's a, she's this, this young woman who's trying to get a date. She's on all the apps. She can't get it. But then she meets this lovely guy called Steve at a, a supermarket who's played by Sebastian Stan. He's a dork. He's adorable. Um, but actually, maybe he's not as nice as he seems because actually Steve's job is to sell human flesh on the black market and uh, Noah's his latest slab of meat. So yeah, it's just a really dark comedy horror, basically. It kind of like has the kind of same tone as American Psycho. That's the kind of vibe I got, um, especially Sebastian Stan, who's like mincing it up as this kind of crazy cannibal who's ate too much human flesh and sort of went a bit off the rails. I think the director, Mimi Cave, this is her first feature and she handles the kind of shifting tones brilliantly. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a lark. It's really kind of fun and darkly humorous, but it's kind of a real kind of political edge as well and sort of extremely witty in the way it kind of deploys all its twists and turns. Uh, Sebastian Stan is the best I've ever seen him. You know, it's the kind of wild-eyed performance that I haven't seen from him before. And, uh, you know, he's a, a very convincing villain. And I think I can see him being quite an interesting actor once he... He gets too old to play the pretty boy in Marvel films. And uh, yeah, again, Daisy uh, Daisy Jones was also excellent. Um, she shows a lot more range than she got to show in Normal People, where she was just being like sort of pretty and sad. But here she's like a kind of real good horror final girl. You know, she like sort of, uh, yeah, she's like really interesting and gritty. And yeah, it's a pretty gory film that she will please horror buffs, but it's also quite interesting um, you know, in these kind of Me Too genre films, something like Promising Women, say, but I think a bit more interesting, a bit smarter about uh, its politics. So yeah, I big thumbs up for me on Fresh. Good stuff. And that's on Disney Plus, yeah? It's on Disney Plus, yeah. Good stuff. Anahit, right. what have you been watching? Um, I have been watching Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I finally got into Bridgerton after like a year and a half. Uh, it's very sexy. It's very good. The Duke's really hot. That's really all there is to say about that. I did uh, show my parents the new West Side Story yesterday. Um, and my mum, after 30 minutes, said in like tones of great disgust, all anyone cares about is sex and fighting. And that was it. So <laughs> that wasn't very successful, I'll be honest with you. Um, but yeah. That, that's all I've been watching. <laughs> it has Could... been a barren month. <laughs> Still, at least they've got a new tagline for the DVD. <laughs> West Side Story, all anyone cares about is sex and fighting. <laughs> Which um, is fair. I think that sums up the modern condition. <laughs> I've got a question. Annie, what's your favourite song from West Side Story? Ooh, I really like Tonight. I really like tonight, and I like it like before the fight, where it like layers in with everything else. So, yeah, that I'm was big really fan. good. I'm a big fan of Mister. Is it Mister. Krumpsky? 
Yes, Officer Krupke. Officer, Kru- yeah. Officer Krupke, that's one. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's really, especially in this like new one, like all of them just being stupid. Yeah, I really like that one too. Yeah. It is a good film. I mean, she's not wrong, but it is also a good film. <laughs> that Steven Spielberg can move a camera. Who knew? <laughs> I haven't seen West Side Story, but I did watch Cabaret for the first time uh, last week. But the film I want to recommend to people is a film that's just come on Netflix called The House, which is a three-part stop-motion animation. Each part of the film is sort of set around this big grand villa, but the film is basically a horror where the antagonist is the British housing market. Uh, so the so the first oh part, the first part is about this poor kind of rural family in Victorian times, and this eccentric architect offers to build them the house. Um, but he's an eccentric architect with um, nefarious intentions. Um, the characters all have these big, like, moon-shaped heads, but tiny little, very reserved English faces. It's extremely creepy, and it's got a very weird and ominous energy. Uh, the second part is by... So the first part is by Emma DeSwaif and Mark James Rolls, and the second part is by Nicolin Roth von Barr, as previously mentioned on the last episode of the Cineskinny oh, yeah. podcast. Um, so that part is about an anthropomorphic rat who is trying to develop the house in the present day, uh, and he does it out in this really horrible shades of like letting agent grey, and everything is just marble. The banker constantly after him for money, and the place becomes infested with bugs, and it gets extremely odd. Um, and then the third part is about this kind of anthropomorphic cat who wants to return the house to its former glory after everything around it has flooded and the renovations are going badly and she's fed up with her like last remaining tenants. But there's a kind of someone enters the fray and kind of changes things up a bit. It's really interesting. The voice cast is really great. It's got Mark Heap, Will Clark, Susan Wacoma, Jarvis Cocker plays the rat, if I remember correctly. Uh, Mia Goth's in it. Um, and it's just, yeah, really great to see stop motion animation get funded and made. And this is like really intense and creepy stop motion animation. It's not like kind of cheery, lovely. It's no, uh, it's no Wallace and Gromit. Um, <laughs> but in its own way, it is just as good. The, uh, the first and second parts are the best. I would say that it's the kind of thing you could watch in three parts over, say, a couple of nights a week. The first part is the best part. It's extremely, like, I don't want to really say too much about it other than to say lots of people in felted Victorian jackets looking extremely sad and then a very, very strange house. Delightful. That sounds great. great. Yeah, that's on uh, that's on Netflix just now. Um, and it only came on, like, a month ago, and I think it's a Netflix, like, original, whatever they call them these days. So it will be on there for a while. So wait until... Wait until it's a, a dark and stormy night outside and be t- <laughs> taken on a journey of like weird, horrible rats trying to do up terraced houses. Great fun. Yeah, that really does speak to the British housing market. My <laughs> God. Okay, so compartment number six, as we, as we discussed earlier, uh, shared one of the top prizes at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Uh, it's the new film by Yuho Kosmanen, who is the director of The Happiest Day in the Life of Ollie Mackey, a Finnish director, and this film is about a woman called Laura, played by Sadie Harla, who is a Finnish woman who lives in Moscow, and she's traveling from Moscow to Murmansk, which is up in the Arctic Circle, 
to go and see these petroglyph rock drawings that are right out on this kind of rocky outcrop at the edge of the Arctic. Um, but on this long kind of like night train journey, uh, she's sharing a bunk with Lyoka, who is played by Yuri Borisov, who is basically on his way north to work in one of these big kind of mining operations up in the Arctic Circle. So that's the premise of the film. We're on a train with an unlikely odd couple. Jamie, what did you think? Um, yeah, I, I, I really love this. Um, it's interesting reviewing it so hot in the heels of The Worst Person in the World because these are both Nordic films that I think do a really good job of taking the cliches of American rom-coms and making these tropes kind of feel like really fresh. So it is a kind of love story, but not really the kind of passionate, romantic one that you see in Hollywood movies. So it kind of strips away all that kind of ornamentation and cutesiness of Hollywood to tell this story of kind of two really lonely people who are on this journey, but kind of find a connection in this kind of really grim uh, situation. So it's like, the, the film is actually really sweet, but the, the everything about it is kind of quite grim and gritty and rough. So it kicks off with this kind of really wonderful opening titles where Roxy Music's Love is a Drug is playing over the, um, and it's that's where we meet Laura, who's this, as you say, this young student um, who's living in Moscow. Um, and she's in love. She's she's gone out with this woman, and but she doesn't seem that happy about it. So we, we meet her at this kind of bourgeois party that her um, girlfriend's hosting. And she, but she seems just about out, out of place. Um, and she's amongst these kind of sophisticated academics who all sit around playing guess the quote and kind of humiliate her a little bit because she's not, um, part, partly because of the language barrier, but partly she doesn't seem to be part of this milieu. Um, and it turns out she's about to go on a holiday or a trip north and she's meant to be going with her girlfriend, but her girlfriend's sort of ditched her at the last minute. So she's left to go on this journey alone. So it kind of gives you a hint that, that whatever's going on with her and her girlfriend, it's not like... You know, it's not going to last, basically. It, it basically, I think, the main sort of... And it's like a bit of a trite idea, but it's basically saying don't judge people by by their exterior or, or, you know, don't judge the book by its cover because, you know, these bourgeois people uh, turn out to be horrible. But actually what happens is Laura, who seems to be from a lower class than them, she goes on this, this trip and she meets lots of kind of lower class Russians who are who are sort of just sort of living their life. But yeah, they, they have a kind of really kind of tough, gruff, surly exterior, but they turn out to be sort of a bit soft underneath. And that's certainly what she finds with Leoka, who's this this kind of surly miner who she meets and he's swigging vodka, he's really brash. You know, he says a few hurtful things while he's drunk to her and, and they really got off to a bad situation. But yeah, over the film, they, they sort of slowly realise actually we've actually got quite a lot in common. So I think part of the reason it works is because the way it's shot, it's, it's all handheld and it's shot in these kind of tight spaces on real trains that are from the kind of Soviet era. And it has a kind of real kind of intimacy. And it, you, you can basically feel like you're flying the wall in the carriage. And yeah, you can feel like you're, you're along with them. You know, you can smell the pickles that they're eating. You can feel the cold in the carriage. And yeah, and it's, it's a really kind of atmospheric film, I think. And what kind of makes them bond together, actually, is this hipster joins the carriage, this Finnish hipster who's got a guitar and he's really handsome. And Laura is instantly attracted to him, I think partly because they both speak the same language and they can communicate. 
And it seems like initially, oh, this is going to be the romance. She's met this 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 hunk who's arrived, and they're going to this is going to be the the romantic Halloween moment. But actually, he turns out to be an absolute prick. Yeah. So I think it's again, it's just like a really interesting how it's like playing with all these ideas of what people are on the surface and what they are underneath, which again sounds really trite, but it's done in a really kind of naturalistic way and a really kind of a nuanced way within the film. There's a lot of kind of play with language. There's a great joke. Um, about the kind of difference between Finnish and Russian, and uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil the joke because it's great, but like uh, that's that's a, a lot of what I liked about it is the kind of misconnections through language and sort of misunderstandings through language um, when you meet sort of a stranger who's not from your culture. Um, so I guess it's a film that's that's sort of saying be open to other people, you know, be open to other cultures that might be different from you, and sort of don't assume because someone initially seems standoffish. That's actually how they really are, um, which again, when I say it out loud, sounds really trite. But I think the, the power of the film is like it never comes across like that. I thought while watching it, um, I don't know what you guys thought. Yeah, I I liked it. I did. Um, I think yeah, that idea of working with tropes and especially like the romantic comedy tropes is really spot on because it does all of that kind of like enemies to lovers like basically they're sharing a bed um but it really works because it does have this kind of freshness to it it's very sweet it's very romantic it's really about like the very essence of chemistry and connection beyond kind of typical structures of relationships or social systems to shore it up it is just like what if two people meet and they just click um and both these characters they're so lonely and they're so hurt and that compassion and that intrigue they have for each other is enough. It's been compared to Before Sunrise a lot, like the Richard Linklater film. Um, and I think very much in like its premise, it's very similar. It has a kind of incidentality that I think Before Sunrise doesn't have that kind of works at times. Like you say, Jamie, it is very sensory. It's very lived in. And they're not just having these cerebral conversations about like love and art. They are like, smoking together and kind of pushing past each other and it just feels like you feel it's all just very like corporeal and very bodily um but I think there is maybe a slight imbalance that compartment number six has in that like we see her when she's not on the train and we see her journey to the train and then we see a lot about like it is partly about her relationship with him but it's also partly about her previous relationship and I think maybe that sort of like imbalance and that kind of less of like an eagle eye focus on the blossoming of their relationship um, maybe makes it slightly less, yeah, like a little less focused and a little bit broader what it's saying. Whereas I think Before Sunrise works so well because it's so, so honed in on these two people and how they are together. But yeah, it's, a, it's just a really lovely film. I found her character a little bit annoying, but I really liked him. Um, like he does start off like so shitty but then as the film goes on and he just has these like gorgeous like expressive blue eyes that just kind of like look up and he just communicates a lot without saying a lot and yeah I just found him really interesting as an actor um so yeah I I did I did like it did you what did you think Peter? I thought it was I I think I quite liked it um I found it quite um I found it very claustrophobic at the start. I don't really like trains that much. I found it quite stressful, <laughs> all the stuff about like just being 
uh, having to squeeze between people. And I think one of the things that is really good about it from the perspective of like a kind of on the road or like a kind of on the rails movie, the temptation those films always have is to either like glamorize it and make it seem like a really jolly old lot or to make it horribly dire. And this does a really good job of making a night train across Russia seem like appropriately grim and sweaty, but in quite a, like a mundane, real, quotidian it's a bit shitty, but it's basically fine kind of way. But as somebody who does initially, like it did feel a bit kind of like claustrophobic and hemmed in. Um, but yeah, their their kind of growing relationship, you do warm to them um, over the over the course of the film. One thing I did think is that Lyoka's character was almost a bit too mean for me at the start. And um, like it goes in really heavy with this idea that like he's being quite like unpleasant so when they have the turn towards them being more friendly it took me a while to get on board with that but by the end when they eventually it's not a spoiler to say that their train eventually gets to its destination but then once you get to that destination the journey isn't finished and like Mm. it does a nice job of like subverting again subverting your expectations about like what the end of the journey actually is um and it does reach a kind of fairly satisfying ending but it did the start of it really did like it jarred me a little bit and it took me a while to get uh, on board with it but i did enjoy it in the end and i did write in the notes that the real villain of this piece is this inside lewin davis looking motherfucker who turns up about <laughs> halfway through <laughs> and yeah. it's like when he gets out the guitar yeah it's just incredibly bad energy yeah. Yeah. Envy who has like acoustic guitar on holiday is is evil. <laughs> yeah, not um, to be trusted. I also really like the period setting. Like I don't think we should, I don't even said this yet, but like um it it's, takes a while to work out when it's set. Um because like I say, it opens with like a Roxy music song, so you think, oh maybe it's the seventies. Um and because Russia was a little bit behind the rest of the world, um it, it you know, it always looks a bit out of time and then you see Laura with a camcorder, and you kind of work out, okay, maybe it's the 90s, it's just post um, the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall, uh, you know, post the Soviet Union, and, uh, you know, the trains still look, probably like the trains looked in the 60s, they'll look these kind of battered old sheds. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how, like, uh, yeah, I love the setting, I love the fact it's set in this kind of period between Russia being, you know, Soviet Union and sort of trying to be more integrated into the world. And I guess that's maybe partly the theme as well. You know, it's like, the, the again, the differences between cultures. This is a cult- country that's just opened up again. And the fact that she's Finnish, you know, Finland and Russia have such a complicated history. Um, I'm sure, you know, if you're Finnish or, or you, you maybe have a completely different, you maybe notice nuances that aren't sort of maybe obviously apparent to uh, someone like me who's who is not quite uh, up on the Russian Finnish history so yeah I think there's lots of lots going on under the surface as well hello is it- Jamie frozen for you too oh sorry I, I'd stop talking um <laughs> I think what, you, you froze were- a little bit what did you, <laughs> what, when did you last year no you, I think you did finish talking but okay. then you froze and I okay, was like sorry. oh good. no <laughs> But I, but then I wasn't sure if he had frozen, and he was just sitting perfectly still, <laughs> like a human statue, like you were posing for the golden Jamie. Much like the worst person in the world, he's demonstrating that you can just. Stand I'm just looking still. at the castle wistfully, 
seriously. The incredible special effects on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> if we, if we're not How does he do it? I can be very confused when people stand still. <laughs> anyway, compartment number six is out on. The, it's out next Friday, eighth of April, across the UK. It's definitely on at the Glasgow Film Theatre, and it will be on in Edinburgh and various other places across the country from the eighth. Okay, so that was compartment number six, um, and kind of to tie in with that, we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about the continuing prevalence of trains and train travel in film. People, you know, taking long journeys or going off to the frontier on a train, blah de blah blah So, not blah de blah blah interesting content inbound. Anyway, <laughs> J- Jamie, I thought I would come to you first, having just prefaced it with blah de blah blah um, Why do you think that there are so many films kind of in this area like set on the rails or like set around long train journeys or things like that why do you think it is that this is such a recurring motif well i guess the well first of all trains are quite cinematic i think like uh, more so than sort of cars or planes because you know not only do they have a kind of glamour that planes and cars don't have you know if you think of like films like the Orient express or strangers on a train or the lady vanishes you know like train travel has always been a bit more glam and exciting i think and, you know there's also the the fact that trains almost move like cameras i don't, I don't know if you, you know like think of like cameras moving on uh tr- you know tracking shots it's they move in a similar way they, they're you know it's this kind of smooth ride uh, and there's also the op- you know the, the opportunity of bumping into lots of people so like it's like you know usually you have something like say the meat cutes of you know before sunrise or you have something like strangers on a train where you meet this person who you're never going to see again so so they, they have a kind of quality where it's potential to put interesting plots um and also like a long journey um so you know some something in a confined space always works cinematically as well so it's, it's kind of similar to a submarine movie in a way so once you're on the train you can get off it's not like a, a car where you can pull over to the side and get off and it's not quite like a plane because a plane you can't really move around it's much more like a submarine movie um a train so it's, it's where you're it's a confined space but you can move around and do things you can have action and so you have a lot of action movies set on trains a lot of action set pieces set around trains so yeah i just think there's something about trains which which lend themselves to cinema um and that's why you have so many films um set around them i would say um and do you agree yeah i think it is that idea of you are both moving and in the same place and it's that kind of like tension that you can like thinking about yeah like the lady vanishes or even um one of my favorite chain things is uh indiana jones and the last crusade like the beginning bit with river phoenix where it's like the origin story of how he got his scar or whatever um and he's kind of going through this like train that belongs to a circus and so each new carriage is like a new obstacle or a new adventure um and so you're kind of like moving through this thing but you're also still trapped in it at the same time so you're given like an entire world but the world has very strict boundaries and limitations and i think that really lends itself to like action i think it really lends itself to mystery as well i think it's why agatha christie set I think there were like two or three of her books that like took place on of the Poirot books, especially that took place on trains. And yeah, I think it does have that kind of I agree, it is cinematic, but I think also even just on a narrative level, 
it just has so much kind of inbuilt tension around it, which is exciting. Yeah. And unlike a car, you can't like, you know, you can set action scenes on top of this, the train. You know, you can set it on the side mm. of the train, jumping from train carriage to train carriage, you know, like the train can be out of control in a way that a car can't be out of control, you know? So like, uh, yeah. yeah, there's lots of possibilities. And I think a lot of filmmakers have found very inventive ways of, uh, you know, making very interesting action films um, and certain mystery films. You know, like you say, there's lots of places you can hide. Every carriage has another secret, you know, there's a... Yeah, there's lots, lots, lots going on. You've different spaces. You've like you've got the kind of dining car. You've got the the sort of old school uh, berths. You know, they can be quite sexy because uh, in the way that you can have like privacy on a train, you can't mm-hmm. have on a plane or a car. So they can be very romantic. You know, um, yeah. So there's lots of possibilities that you don't have in other types of vehicles. Yeah, and I think obviously you do have like the road trip film as a genre, and that does take place in cars. But like you say, it's doing a very, very different thing there is like a different kind of politics of intimacy and control that is working with that. Um, I think very often it's not surprising that those are usually set in the US because there is that idea of, yeah, like kind of newly imagined frontiers all the time. Whereas the train, it feels like quite distinctly European, I think as well, a lot of the time. Um, I think it's like playing with a particular like politics of moving through kind of like compartment number six does in a way, this idea of moving through different spaces and different people and different cultures coming in um, in a way that a road trip movie doesn't do in quite the same way. Yeah, I think the thing about films, when I kind of think about the films I've enjoyed that are kind of set on the, on the rails, they do have that thing that like the setting is fixed, but it's also moving. People are like traveling, but they're also not in control of where they're going. And it is this thing that they're like simultaneously, it's like taking the whole set and just putting it on rails and having it dash down the road at 100 miles an hour because it adds like it physically adds somewhere that everyone's going it gives everyone and crucially for like just really basic like suspension of disbelief it gives you a really good reason why everyone's there and a good reason why they're all just sitting around chatting or flirting with each other because it's like yeah, i'm stuck yeah. on this train for eight hours what do you expect me to do i'm not driving the thing so yeah <laughs> there's an element of that as well that like it's a really effective i think it's a really effective like storytelling device partly because you're simultaneously going somewhere very deliberately but you're also not really doing anything at the time and you're in a position where you can't really do anything about it unless you and then that's how you can get into these like action movie situations where it's like the runaway train from the title of the film is running away <laughs> you gotta help well i've got nothing else to do so i may as well um <laughs> But I don't, I don't believe we're talking about Runaway Train today. We each had a bit of a think about our favourite train set films. Um, and we're going to talk through them just now and recommend them to each other and to you all. So, uh, Jamie, do you want to go first and tell us about The Narrow Margin? Yes, uh, this is a 1952 film noir by Richard Fleischer. And it's just such an engaging, inventive fat-free film that is set almost entirely on the train. There's like a little bit at the start um, in an apartment and a little bit at the end, but mostly it's on the train. So the plot is that this kind of gruff cop who's played by Charles McGraw, uh, he has to guard the wife. Uh, well, it's basically, I think it's, you know, sorry, it's the, it's, the, it's the mole of a gangster, so like a gangster's mole, basically. Um, and she's about to testify against the crime organisation. But there are a lot of assassins 
trying to take her out before she reaches Los Angeles. So the idea is he's, he's got to escort her and get her safely from uh, Chicago to Los Angeles. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just really tense, basically, because all these people are trying to kill this woman. Um, so it's, yeah, Fleischer's a really underrated director. He's kind of made all sorts of films. Um, you know, he's made sort of fantasy adventure films like 2000 Leagues Under the Sea. He's made sort of serial killer movies like The Boston Strangler. He made sci-fi films like Soylent Green and Fantastic Voyage. So he seems a bit of a journeyman, but I think all of his films have a really kind of sharp, almost comic book-like aesthetic. And that's what you have here. It's like a, it's like a film noir, but also almost like a comic book noir. Um, so it's really pulpy. It's full of these kind of wild twists and amazing, amazing kind of sort of suspense sequences. And he really makes great use of the tight spaces of the train. You know, these cramped spaces where you have to have sort of fights and, uh, you know, behind every door, there's somebody else uh, trying to kill you, you know. Um, I think Quentin Tantino is probably a fan because if you think of the scene in Kill Bill where Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah have a fight in a caravan, I think that must be inspired by a kind of epic fight scene in the narrow margin, um, which is just like, it, yeah, it's like, it's how do two big burly guys fight in a very, very small room? And it's just re- very funny, but also kind of really brutal um, in a way that kind of 50s movies sometimes aren't. So yeah, it's a great, and I believe you can watch it for free on YouTube. It's only 71 minutes. Like I say, it flies by. Uh, it has so many twists and turns, and the performances are fantastic. So Charles McGraw is this kind of really kind of tough, hard-boiled guy who you see in a lot of noirs, but I think this is his only lead. I haven't really seen him as a lead in anything else. There's also uh, Marie Windsor, who, um, again, is like just an amazing femme fatale. She's in lots of 50s and 40s movies. And uh, yeah, she's like as tough as this cop she's like uh yeah she's really funny um is this kind of gangster mole but actually there's more to her than you think um yeah i i love it and uh that's what i recommend good stuff i've not seen it have you seen it pizza i've not seen it no yeah i mean it sounds great 71 minutes or so that like sounds very doable yeah Yeah. there's no excuse we love to see it Um, so that was the narrow margin, and Anahit, I believe you want to talk about the big man. Snowpiercer. <laughs> Snowpiercer, baby. <laughs> yes, so I want to talk about Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, which came out in 2013. Um, it is based on a French graphic novel, I believe, and it is about, um, so set in like a future dystopia, God, what is that like, um, where like climate change like, you know, was absolutely fucked and scientists tried to intervene and do something and instead they plunged us in a new ice age, essentially. And so all of society, for reasons that aren't entirely made clear, but also kind of are, um, have just been put on a train that is going round and round the world. And this train is still very much, as with all dystopias, has pulled through all of the shitty politics of everything that came before. So it's like really like split into like various strata of social classes so you have like the very very poor people at the back of the train who like are fed basically mulch that's made from bugs and they live in like appalling conditions and then as you kind of progress through the train everyone becomes like a lot wealthier and just the wealth disparity is insane and it kind of focuses on a group of people from the back of the train who decide to basically stage a revolution 
It has an absolutely bananas cast. Um, so it has Chris Evans, like, fully in his Captain America days, which I just think the vision to cast him when he was kind of doing something a little bit more boring in this, like, Bong Joon-ho, just he had, he had the vision. Um, it has Tilda Swinton, John Hurt, Sung Kang-ho, Octavia Spencer, um, just this amazing, really rich cast. I think Parasite is probably a better film but I love Snowpiercer so much more. It is so weird. It's so flagrant and batshit, but it's so tightly wound around this kind of razor sharp politics um, that everything batshit about it only adds to the dystopia. Like, how can you talk about capitalism without engaging with like this politics of extremes? And there's this kind of sense through the film that um, we're like, all of society is being held on this train, like quite literally, and we're being pulled through with these characters, almost like a funhouse of systemic violence. And it's so interesting and makes such an interesting use of, yeah, that train space that we were talking about. Um, Snowpiercer is also uh, home to one of my favorite anecdotes about cinema. Have you heard of the fish thing in Snowpiercer? It's ringing a bell, but you're going to have to fill me in. (laughs) So there is like an action scene, um, which everyone is like fighting on a carriage. And then one person slips on this random fish that's on the ground. And that kind of is a catalyst for all kinds of things happening. And Bong Joon-ho like obviously filmed it and edited it into his like preferred cut and showed it to Harvey Weinstein, who was the producer on the film. And Harvey Weinstein was like, what the fuck is this? Like, you can't have a fish in an action sequence. Like, this is insane. Like, you have to take it out. And Bong Joon-ho was like, oh, well, you see, like, my father was a fisherman. And so this has, like, enormous, like, cultural and emotional value to me. And that's kind of why I wanted to have it in. And Harvey Weinstein was like, oh, my God, like, of course, of course, like, you have to have it in, whatever. And then years later, I think when he was doing press for Parasite, someone brought it up and he was like, oh, that was a fucking lie. My dad wasn't a fisherman. I just really wanted to keep that scene in. (laughs) Which I just think is really beautiful. So I just love it a lot. It's just such a weird film from start to finish. The thing about it, of them traveling from like the back to the front, it really works because of where they are, because they don't actually have any other choice than to like stay at the back and be stuck or to try and move forward and make things better. Because it's kind of like a yeah, horizontal exactly. version of the raid, um, the raid, the Malaysian um, like police film where they have to fight from the bottom to the top of a tower block, um, but they're fighting for better reasons and a slightly more uh, easier to accept premise in that it is future <laughs> snow capitalist dystopia. We all know what yeah, that would exactly. look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all fucking heading towards it. So. <laughs> Yeah, it is just, yeah, you're right. Like it does in terms of the train setting, it just makes such good use of it. And each carriage like is its own little world. And I think sometimes with world building, there is this temptation to go big, but this is just like so small and so contained and just like the details in it, like the sushi bar that you'll find in like the upper middle classes, like just has so much significance after. Yeah, it's just really smart. I really like it. It is absolutely brilliant it is on amazon prime just now i believe and you can rent it from various um different streaming places yeah it's on prime just now the film that i want to talk about is only partly set on a train but i think it fits the mold of the main character getting stuck in what i've dubbed the liminal travel zone 
where they need to get somewhere but are unable to actually do it under their own power. And that is Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the uh, John Candy and Steve Martin 1987 comedy about a, I think he's an insurance agent trying to get home to his family for Thanksgiving. He wants to get to the airport. He can't get a cab, so he nearly misses his flight. But then he bumps into, so Steve Martin is your kind of like uptight um I work in insurance and banking man. Um, and he, cab, he his cab to the airport gets stolen by John Candy, his character Dell. Uh, so he nearly misses his flight, but then his flight home has to land in bad weather. So the two of them get a train. Their train chucks them off in the middle of a field. So they have to change transport again. He wants to get a car, but he can't get a car. Basically, he's locked on uh, travel mode and is unable to get out. Um, and it's a, a film about how frustrating travel can be when you don't feel like you're in control of your own situation but it's really really funny when you're in that kind of situation like everyone sat on a train that has all of a sudden at york decided that it will be delayed by an hour even though an hour hasn't passed um you know (laughs) where you get to the platform and they're like oh yeah we're not going anywhere for a while or you've been on a train that just like stops in the middle of the countryside and there's no announcement on the tannoy for like 10 minutes until eventually they say, oh yeah, we'll be going in a second. Or like <laughs> your connection's been cancelled. Or if you're in a position where you're trying to travel and you can't, you're not in control of the situation. And that to me is mm. what like films set on trains are often about that thing of this, the ability to control the story has kind of been wrested away from the character and they have to try and get by as much as they can. Uh, and Planes, Trains and Automobiles does a really good job of like both making that a key part of the story and having it having the main character have to kind of learn to overcome their frustrations and stop just being a dick to people. But they also personify it in the form of John Candy, who is uh, often just like half a step ahead of Steve Martin to his absolute ire and uh, fury. So, yeah, very funny. It's on Prime and Netflix just now, I believe. Um, yeah. It's very funny. I recommend it. It is part of that whole, like, because um, I watched it when I was little. Like, my parents showed it to me. It was part of that whole, like, sort of run of 80s, 90s films that Steve Martin did. We watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels a lot, which is not set on a train at all. <laughs> but it had, like, that kind of very similar vibe that I, I just really associate with my childhood, with, weirdly, even though it's just not a kid's film at all. <laughs> but it feels very nostalgic. Yeah, Steve Martin's just really good at being angry. I think that scene where he, he, he tries to rent a car and he and he throws away the, sh- the receipt and then he goes to get the car again and, and, and uh, he, he has the very F-bomb-laden rant. At the, we've, all, we've all done that to this, these service workers who basically can't change it, but we need to, get, we need to express our frustration at the horrible travel. Uh, so it's like, yeah, like you say, Peter, it does very well um, personify the kind of horrible of traveling and how, and how hellish it can be uh, especially when it goes wrong so yeah great film okay and before we go this week um the oscars were on sunday so we have to talk about those the elephant in the room and then nested within that elephant is another smaller slightly angrier <laughs> elephant um which is a uh, will smith hit chris rock we will discuss it extremely briefly and then move on to other things that happened at the Oscars, including people actually winning awards, which have somewhat been overshadowed by this moment. 
Well, it's a tricky one to talk about because basically I don't know what's going through Will Smith's mind in that moment, you know, why he exploded in that way. I understand the joke was terrible and in poor taste and really offensive. But yeah, what shocked me more than the slap is the Oscar, the Academy's reaction to it because, you know, basically someone assaulted someone on stage and nobody batted an eyelid. You know, they carried on as if nothing happened, which I, I just couldn't quite believe, you know. Chris Rock was vis- visibly shaken, you know. You can see him look off stage to see if they're going to stop the show and he clearly gets some sort of signal to say carry on, and he does. But that, that to me was the most shocking thing, just trying to pretend it never happened. And I can't imagine any other award ceremony doing that, you know, just like if someone gets assaulted on stage, the, the person who did assaulting doesn't get asked to leave. And obviously Will Smith did eventually go on and win. And I found his speech also very strange because basically it was him trying to justify his actions, you know, and I found that very crass. Instead of just, you know, instead of saying, I got angry and, and sort of made a mistake, he, he sort of justifies it by saying it was almost like, uh, you know, life imitating art. You know, he says that I played Richard Williams, who's this kind of crazy, passionate dad who made mistakes out of love. And I'm just like him. You know, I was protecting my family. Love makes you do crazy things. And I feel, I don't know, that just made me feel very uncomfortable while watching it. That's the kind of thing that people say that that my passion made me do this. And I don't think it's always an excuse, you know. And I think clearly they have beef. You know, if you remember, Rock made some... Uh, jokes about Jada Pinkett Smith um, when she want, when she said she wanted to boycott boycott the Oscars. So I think there's you know some beef there, some history that we don't quite know about, and I think that might um, be uncovered over the next few days. But whatever happened, I feel the Oscars, I guess, should have acted. You know, um, that that that's my my only issue with it. I just feel like to me, it, it, I saw a rich man commit a crime. And nobody said anything, basically, and then and then gave an award and, pl- and applauded. Um, and he, you're shaking. Your head. I don't think you. Is that too sim- Is that too simplistic a, a reading? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I really try and go through life not speculating about the reasons that rich people do things because it just that way truly lies madness. Yeah, who knows why he did it? Who knows why? The the reason the Oscars didn't stop is because the Oscars are themselves insane. And I think there is actually a lot to be said beyond this about the ways that they have like managed their broadcasting. Um, So again, that doesn't really surprise me. Um, I do think it is worth saying beyond all of this that like Chris Rock made a documentary about like black women's hair and it's a shitty thing to joke about and everything else I don't really feel it is my place or my even like there is no point you know saying anything about it almost because this is just like so beyond any of our pay grades or our experiences in life like the dynamics I think that celebrities have between them is just on another planet um but I think it's a shitty way to talk about um yeah about kind of uh, illness about black women's hair does have like particular cultural significance obviously um and it was just shit and that's what I have to say (laughs) that's my hot take (laughs) I feel I feel bad for Questlove that it overshadowed Summer of Soul winning the best documentary Oscar 
which was immediate. Oh, was he? Was, was Chris Rock presenting that? Yes. Yeah. So it was immediate in the immediate aftermath of that that Questlove got his Oscar. So we want to say congratulations from the Cine Skinny podcast to Questlove. Oh yeah, well yeah. done, Questlove. We love Questlove. Bless him. Summer Soul is amazing. That was. Yeah, that was, I think, one of the few things out of a truly atrocious ceremony that was good. Yeah. Like, one of the few awards that we can all be like, yes, that was good and nice and good. Yeah. I haven't watched um, Riz Ahmed's best short film winning film, The Long Goodbye, I believe it's called, but it's on YouTube. I found out last night in doing some research for the episode. So, yeah, so Riz Ahmed, uh, spoken word artist, actor, rapper, true polymath, renaissance man of our times, top, top guy, um, <laughs> and now Oscar winner for yeah, a short film called The Long Goodbye, which is on YouTube just now. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Um, and I think yeah, it, he, he deserves it. I believe that the short film was tied in with his most recent uh, rap album. I would recommend, like, his music is really good. Riz Ahmed, we like him. I've also made a note, Kenneth Branagh won an Oscar for Belfast, but I, Peter, oh still God. won't watch it. Society can't make me. Uh, <laughs> it just makes me, I'm sorry, it makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. Like, what the fuck? Is, like, best original screenplay? Are they joking? Are they joking? It's so badly written. It says nothing. Like, oh man, like, th- this is what I mean. Like, there's so much about the Oscars, like, make you genuinely angry. I think what they did with all of the technical awards where they didn't broadcast them was horrible. Like, really horrible to elect to have essentially a fashion show taking place on ABC and ignore all of, like, the immense amount of technical work that goes into filmmaking. Like, best editing, best score, like, these are really integral parts of cinema. Oh, it just made me really pissed off. Um, and it made me angry a lot of the actors that like didn't turn up to kind of support their team on that side. I don't know. And then the really funny thing is that June then swept all of it, which is like the most populist, well not populist, but like super popular kind of for the masses film that the Oscars had. So then they kind of shot themselves in the foot because they were trying to, you know, like, oh, try and get people in. And instead of actually paying attention to the film that everyone liked, they cut all of that and then didn't fucking Zack Snyder win the best popular film. Just I, I love that. I thought that. I thought that was great. I love that Zack Snyder's crazy fans hijacked the Oscars' <laughs> stupid public vote. So like Arm of the Dead wins. I mean, that's fine. It's so good. But, I'm so because uh, the only the only reason they introduced that was to, to appease Marvel because they thought Spider Man would win. And I love that. Yeah. Jack Snyder, uh, Zack Snyder's fans are mental, and they just won, they just like hijacked it. It was great. Um, I but, like that they did that because it serves the Oscars right, but the whole structure of it was nonsense. It should never have existed. Yeah, yeah. There was Duh. another. There was another ray of joy. I thought. I, I thought that there was a lovely moment where Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli were presenting Best Picture together, and you know Liza, she's get she's getting on. She's in a wheelchair. She's looking a bit frail. And she was messing up a few of her lines, um, and Lady Gaga was just so wonderfully supportive and leaned over and yeah. told her, "I've got you." And covered up for all our mistakes. It was just super lovely. Like, uh, yeah, like that's the moment we should be remembering. Like, that's that was that was really yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of best picture, oh yeah, uh, that was not nice. <laughs> that was nonsense. 
that was actual and I like Koda I like Koda a lot but like to pretend that it is on the same level as Power of the Dog is nonsense like I just don't understand what we're doing at this point like have we all lost that like what is the point yeah. I, I <laughs> what is going on yeah I don't like Koda I thought it was a quite a bad sloppy soppy teen movie and I don't yeah like I say there's so many movies like this that are better I don't understand why this one um sort of sort of lit a, lit a flame with like the Oscar voters but I, I realize I don't really understand this group of people who vote for Oscars because I can't understand how one year they vote for Parasite or No Man Land or Moonlight so they seem to oh maybe they've got quite good taste but then the next year they vote for Green Book or Coda or all these other terrible films they vote for, you know, or, or they give Kenneth Branagh the best um, screenplay Oscar. You know, I just quite can't quite get my head around who these voters are and why great great result, Parasite sweeps the boards, terrible year where Coda seems to beat all these better films, uh, beat all these superior films. You know, it's very I strange. think for me it is like a sign of the absolutely shallow representation politics that is at work in the Oscars, where they have been told off so many times that they have kind of absorbed it, but they absorb it in very boring ways. Like I really like everything else that we're not talking about that, but I really, really like Will Smith as an actor. I think he does deserve an Oscar. But King Richard was a very like middle of the road film. And it definitely isn't his best performance that he's ever done. Um, And so like, it doesn't really say like, you know, Moonlight says something really interesting about black filmmaking in a way that I don't really think King Richard does. But I think they are now just at a point where they are working at very, very pure representation politics. And so Coda is obviously a very important film in terms of the deaf community. I love that Troy Kotzer won. I think he is a sweet angel man and I like him a lot. I don't think he was the best supporting actor of the year, but I do really like him a lot. But as a film, just because something is engaging with a quote-unquote issue, which is how the Oscars see this stuff, like, when you're talking about, like, diverse filmmaking, like, you need to think about it in a really, like, the actual filmmaking itself needs to be pushing boundaries, needs to be going against, like, Western-dominant forms or white-dominant forms of filmmaking. So something like Drive My Car, for example, or Parasite or Moonlight, like, these are all good examples of that. And I think sometimes they just get in like this tick boxy mentality of like, oh, Belfast political, which is a joke because Belfast is the least political film that's ever been made on the planet. But I think, yeah, they're just very on the surface and I hate it. And I hate that we talk about it. I hate that it matters. There will also, (laughs) there there absolutely will be the thing as well that they'll be like, oh, we haven't given Kenneth Branagh an Oscar yet. Yeah. Will Smith keeps like yeah yeah Kenneth Branagh or Will Smith or like somebody else who's been around in the business for a while keeps um every time we bump into each other in the pub he or wherever famous people meet I presume they don't meet in the pub downstairs from our office but imagine if they did they would be like <laughs> oh when am I getting my Oscar um but yeah I think there's some there's oh. some bead beams of beams of joy is that a thing there's some elements of goodness in this some of it is okay. <laughs> being being downgraded in real time um but yeah june june won editing production design cinematography visual effects and it has sweet timothy chalamet in it so i think officially we can say best looking film of last year june 
Yeah. We also, oh my god. We, yeah, also... What he was wearing. Can we think about what he was wearing <laughs> oh, for yeah. a minute? Because that. that was the highlight of the Oscars. Oh my god. <laughs> Good on Timmy. If, if I had a flat stomach, I would also wear that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the oh, summer's just great. around the what corner. <laughs> yeah. Just you wait. Next, uh, I'll try and get my, my beach board ready for uh, the next premiere I go to. I'll turn up with a glittery, glittery sports coat. Open to open, open. With his wee little necklace. Ah, oh, it was just really cute. <laughs> Uh, so I think me and Jamie know what we're going to spend our lunchtime doing. We'll be on Depop trying to recreate the look in time in <laughs> yes. time for our next episode, which will be out in two weeks' time. So uh, <laughs> smooth finish to the episode there. Um, so yeah, thanks to everyone for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, then um, tell your friends, tell your pals, tell anyone you know who likes films. Give us a, send us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Uh, rate us however many stars you're allowed to rate out of on all those platforms. Um, if you want to follow more of what we're up to, you can follow the whole bunch of us at the Skinny Mag on Twitter. You can follow Jamie on uh, Jamie Dunn Esquire. You can follow Anaheat on Anaheat Ruse, and you can follow me on Peter Simpson. All one word, no vowels. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. Um, anything else for either of you to add, Anaheat? No. Has anyone emailed us yet? I don't know that they have. For a while, the okay. email address was <laughs> wasn't uh, wasn't working. Uh, okay. But someone should give it a go. Prize All to right. the, a prize to the first person who sends us an email. <laughs> It'll be uh, somebody asking for money, probably. Well, I mean, it's nice to be nice to be thought of. <laughs> Before you email us asking for money, we don't have any. That's why we're all spread around various different meeting rooms. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Anahi. Cheers, Peter. Thank you. And we will be back in two weeks' time. So bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. bye, bye.